It's my pleasure to welcome you here to the Clark Howard Show, where it's all about you learning ways to save more and spend less. And don't let anyone ever rip you off. I want to tell you, if you live in an area where you have no high-speed internet available to you, or you have very limited, pitiful choices, the improvement that I've said was coming is coming and in many places is now here. One example I want to give you is a big announcement from Verizon that is offering two different types of home internet. One of them is specifically geared towards people in rural areas that have not had any choice of internet provider typically except for those lousy legacy satellite internet services which are frightfully expensive and have tight data caps and are very slow. Verizon is offering a internet service that will not be blazing fast, but you'll typically have speeds of somewhere between 25 and 50 Mbps, which is fast enough for streaming. If you're a gamer, forget it. You're going to lose in gaming competitions, but for every day, internet kind of activities, uh, web surfing, email, um, video, stuff like that, music, you'll be fine. And Verizon is offering it at $40 a month if you use Verizon for your cell phone. If you don't, it's $60 a month, which is much cheaper than what people have been used to for any kind of home internet. Now, there's a second one that, and by the way, this is available in at least parts of 48 states, heavily concentrated, again, in rural areas. What you want to look for is a very wordy name, but it's Verizon. If you go to verizonwireless.com, it's Verizon LTE Home Internet. Then there's a very small number of people who are eligible for Verizon's 5G very fast home internet. And this is in urban, close, mostly close-in urban areas. It's a very fast internet. And it is $50 a month for Verizon subscribers, 70 for people who just want the internet from Verizon. And T-Mobile's home internet that is $50 a month, unlimited everything, you don't have to be a T-Mobile subscriber, the coverage of that has increased dramatically. If you go to T-Mobile.com, look for their home internet, you put in your address, and they'll tell you whether or not it's available where you are. But this is a huge benefit for people who have uh, needs to work from home or do some work at home, have kids that are doing some amount of online schooling instead of in-person schooling, and have not had access to internet at home, these plans now make that possible. And on your cell phone service itself, Metro by T-Mobile, which used to be called Metro PCS, but it's T-Mobile's captive discounter, they have a new plan for 5G service for people switching in pairs so two people go to t-mobile t- uh, metro by t-mobile 
And remember, not T-Mobile, Metro by T-Mobile, confusing. And it's $35 a line, unlimited everything, except Hotspot is limited to 5 gigs a month, not a huge amount of Hotspot. It's on the 5G network. If you need a 5G phone, they'll sell you one for 99 bucks if you come to Metro by T-Mobile from someone else. So you have a high-speed plan, unlimited everything, $35 a month per line, which is a very good deal. And if you've noticed, I've had a number of deals over the last six weeks where the cost of uh, cellular plans, mobile plans, whatever we call them now, has been coming down, down, down. And for people who don't need a lot of data, the price point in the marketplace now is 10 to $15 a month. So big changes. If you're paying more than these kind of prices, you need to look at my cell phone guide at Clark.com to find the best deal for you or whoever you buy cell phone service with, or if you're on a family plan, what is the best family plan for you? It's time for your questions you posted for me at Clark.com slash ask. Whose turn is it? Clark, it's mine. And Miriam in Florida has a question. She says, my teenager is interested in opening an online account with Step, uh, which offers teen mobile banking. What are your thoughts on Step? Step is a newbie, but the plan, at least for now, is very favorable. You got to be 13 or older. You have to have, so basically 13 to 17, you have to have a custodian, an adult, who they call it your sponsor. Legally, it's your custodian. And you get free everything, including something very unusual. They issue you a a Visa card, like with training wheels, that helps you establish credit. And the criteria for getting the card seems pretty easy. It is more like a cross between a debit and a credit card, but one that they treat like a credit card for the purposes of reporting to the credit bureau. So I have no idea how good their service and customer service will be, but in terms of a deal for a teen, it's outstanding. Kim? Brian in Georgia says, I booked an all-inclusive resort vacation to occur in May of this year. Because of COVID, they closed the resort and they canceled guest stays. They are now refusing to issue refunds to anyone. They're only issuing future travel credits valid over the next two years. I've seen complaints all across consumer sites about this. I disputed with my credit card company to no avail. Any idea who I would take this up with? It strikes me as an unethical business practice during a national crisis. Is this another of the complaints about Club Med or is this somebody else? This is Club Med. This infuriates me because Club Med didn't refuse to give money back to people who on their own canceled their trips. Club Med closed the the resorts and now won't give people their money back. Obviously, they're not giving it back because they're broke. You know, they don't have the money. But this is horrific. And I think it's an unacceptable decision that because of the unusual ownership characteristics of Club Med, 
as best I know, they're above and beyond the reach of U.S. law. And so this is, this is a situation that only spreading the word, the bad word, is the only possibility that would bring Club Med to heel since it seems the law can't. And I feel terrible for people who laid out thousands of dollars for Club Med vacations. Even if they wanted to go, they couldn't have gone. And now Club Med says, too bad for you, too sad. That is not the way you treat people. Joel? Clark Rex in Nevada says, Clark, have you heard of GiveBox? A friend of mine is doing it and trying to get me into it as well. It's an online giving platform for nonprofits. It sounds too good to be true, though. So let me know what you think. So this one, I can't figure out uh, what you'd call the business model. Because this gives you the ability as a charity to have a fundraising platform without a lot of the fees that you would normally face for that fundraising platform. You have, um, you have the cost of processing credit cards, as most people donate that way. But a lot of the other costs that people would pay, you don't pay for. So it means that for a charity, much more of the money donated goes to the charity. As to what's behind the curtain and the business model, you know, as we've learned over the years with so many uh, digital and internet startups, the business model is not apparent, uh, at least for a good while, and sometimes there never is a really solid business case or platform, but for now, uh, as long as the money really does flow to the charities, as promised, it looks like a better deal than the prevailing platforms available to charities soliciting donations. Kim? Tom in New Jersey says, what do you think of selling your good credit score? They call it an authorized trade line, and they say that you can make a couple hundred dollars a month by temporarily adding a stranger as an authorized user to one of your credit cards. They say the only risk appears to be that your bank can cancel the card if you do it too often. Okay, first of all, if this was television, you would have seen me shaking my head violently left to right. This is something you should not do. Um, It is where you are renting your credit reputation to someone else. Uh, There are those in the credit granting industry who believe that it is a fraudulent activity, but that's really probably something too far because that would be up to a a judge, a court to decide that. But as far as you getting involved, renting your good name to others, this is too hot to handle, too much risk, and it really is against the whole spirit of the way the credit industry is supposed to work. So the money you would make to me is not worth it. Joel? Clark James in Georgia says, how does overfunded life insurance work as a tax-free retirement savings vehicle? And when does it make sense? In my case, I'm 67 and all my retirement accounts are IRA and 401k. So I... I know this is something pitched to wealthy individuals, generally that you may buy 
uh, single premium, huge life insurance policies that you then turn around and do loans from tax-free, but you're paying massive commissions to do this that wipe out the what to me are the benefits that are pitched to you. I believe people are much better off who have excess funds putting them into conservative investment funds that have very favorable tax treatment than getting involved in something really complicated like overfunding life insurance with single premium policies. Adam is with us on the Clark Howard Show. And Adam, you are someone with two young children. How's it like having two very young kids at home? Yeah, it's 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 good, Clark. Thanks for uh, thanks for uh, taking my call. Um, I actually tell people that I'm on vacation because I go to work every day. And my wife, she actually stays at home home with them, and she definitely works uh, harder than I do. So she's the best. Yeah, because uh, she's on duty every day of the year. Exactly. Yes, sir. That's right. <laughs> Well, how can I help in your situation with, uh, I guess, uh, stay-at-home wife, two young kids? Yes, I've been putting it off. I, I know I need to buy. Um, so we're both 31. You know, I've got some life insurance stuff with work, but I know I need to buy some level-term life insurance. I wasn't sure, like, how long. And then if I needed to set up a policy for my wife as well, she is – uh, probably going to go back to work when the kids are in school, so two, three years. So you both need to have level term policies because whether she's at home or she's working, you're going to have expenses for the children, and you each need to be there to financially support the other. And so right. at 31, buying level term insurance is ultra cheap, and you're in a position then that if you buy a 30-year policy, you've covered most of your remaining working lifetime. Um, you're handling expenses for the kids till they're in their, um, gosh, in their early 30s buying a okay. level-term policy. Okay. Um, it wouldn't really yeah. need be needed for the kids past their early 20s, but it means there'd be more support financially for each of you. Um, also, if uh, you ended up, one of you did pass away decades down the road, the value of what you bought now is actually less because of how inflation would erode the benefits over the years. Gotcha. And gotcha. so that's why I like for people to buy, particularly with 30-year level terms, I like for people to buy hefty policies generally about 10 times your annual income. Okay. So with you, now, that would that, be easy. You just take what yeah, you're now, making a so year sorry. and multiply by 10. Yeah, now, should I do um, – that was one of my other questions, because I'm salary and commission. Should I take 10 times salary plus commission, I'm assuming? Yes, absolutely, because as somebody who, who earns commission, it's a realistic part that will vary year to year, but there's kind of a sense of what – the two together are, and that's the real replacement of income you need to take care of. So the two gotcha. together, and for your wife, uh, before the kids, was she working in her chosen profession and have kind of an idea of what annual earnings would be for her when the kids go to school and she goes back to work? Yes, sir. Yep. 
So buying the 10 times would not be hard. There are more complicated things people will do where they'll buy a 20-year level term to keep an eye on the financial needs of the kids, and they'll buy a second 30-year level term policy and do a mixture in the amount of coverage. And that, to me, for a situation like yours, sounds like more work than is necessary. I would just keep it simple. Each of you buy a 30-year level term and have that nice large benefit to meet unexpected circumstances that we hope never occur. You know, the best thing you can ever do is pay on a level term policy 30 years and never need it because you're still with us. I'm so glad you're with us here on the Clark Howard Show where it's all about you and that wallet of yours. I want you to learn ideas from me so you can keep more of what you have. Our website's clark.com and clarkdeals.com. As coronavirus has spread around the United States, and now we have roughly the number of people who've died of it in seven months, who died in all the years of World War II, American soldiers that died in World War II, it has proven to be an extremely deadly pandemic. And then on top of it, we have our president who's come down with coronavirus, at least so far, seeming like uh, he's going to be a very mild case of coronavirus. I wish him a full recovery. But the president coming down with coronavirus and all those White House staffers and attendees has brought a new focus to the difficulties the economy is having in all the parts of the economy that require people to be in close contact with each other. Over the last few days, airlines have canceled massive numbers of flights that they had scheduled on already deeply reduced schedules for November and December, thinking now with all this new publicity about a potential new wave of coronavirus and all the rest, that people are not going to travel in the numbers they did before. And um, there's so many sectors of the economy that are uh, seeing slowdowns. But the most significant stuff going on is that the recovery of the economy started slowing down about four weeks ago. And a number that I always look at is known as U6. That is what economists pay attention to as the real underlying unemployment rate in the U.S. economy, not the headline number you hear. And we have had a decent recovery in U6 from where we were at the low points back in late spring, but the numbers are still brutal. It's just under 13% U6. And why do economists use U6? Because it includes not just the traditional measurement of people actively looking for work who are unemployed. It also includes people that are involuntary part-time and people who've given up looking for work. So right now we're at uh, somewhere between one in seven and, yeah, about one in seven people have reached a point that they effectively are unemployed or underemployed. And that is a bad picture for the economy going forward. And that's why the head of the Federal Reserve has just 
talked about how important it is that we have a new stimulus package from the Congress and the president has come out for making a deal. Mnuchin and Pelosi have been working on this off and on, um, hot, cold, hot, cold, hot, cold, because the economic recovery losing steam feeds on itself when it loses steam. Now, here's the problem. Our outbreak of coronavirus has been uh, actually much worse than anywhere else in the developed world. So the consequences to our economic activity have been worse. These are Band-Aids, these uh, stimulus packages that Congress passed in rapid succession back early in coronavirus and then not since. These things are like temporary booster shots that are only that because you can't overcome people's lack of confidence in their safety and not getting out there. So we have, and I'm talking rough numbers here, we have roughly a quarter of the American people who don't see coronavirus as a serious issue, uh, think it's overblown, and are continuing life pretty much as normal for them as long as they're employed. Then we have the rest of the population that goes from people that are mildly concerned to people that are living a very locked down life, and then everybody else in between that, of that roughly three quarters of Americans. As long as that large uh, percentage of our population reduces their normal engagement in activities that, that bring the economy along, we're gonna have a tough time. And the confidence is only going to be rebuilt over a number of public health check marks, and that is uh, like truly organized testing programs, treatments that people feel confident in, and ultimately a vaccine that you get to a point sometime probably late next year that enough Americans will have taken that it will help stamp out widespread uh, emergence of coronavirus later in 21. So right now, the economy is not on life support. I want to make that clear. The economy is kind of halfway back from where it was from its spring lows. But from here, it may in fact go into reverse. It's definitely gone into a lower gear and it may require another package of relief to people that are unemployed and underemployed and some other forms of government assistance which is a difficult problem because we have this massive federal budget deficit. So it's kind of like um, a no-win scenario here, but we need to do what we can to keep the economy from going into an extended downturn because the consequences for people's lives are so severe with that. It's time for your questions you posted for me at clark.com ask. Kim and Joel alternate as producers asking your questions. Kim? All right, Chris from California. And Chris says, my state's governor recently signed something called the Public Banking Act. 
which allows cities and counties in California to establish public banks. What does Clark think of the concept of public banking, and how good is it compared to a typical credit union or an online bank? Well, uh, I know the intent was for a good purpose, and I think there are other states that have been beating around the idea of having public interest banks run by governmental entities. I'm just not that excited about it because I think credit unions do a wonderful job putting the interests of their members first. They're owned by the members. And then something that is really not talked about enough is the influence of online banks and how they offer a much more customer-friendly, consumer-friendly kind of environment than you have with traditional bricks-and-mortar banks that generally are hostile to people who don't have a lot of money. Let's face it, that's the way the banking world works now. So this is designed to address the hostility of banks towards everyday Americans, but I think that can be dealt with and is being dealt with by the marketplace with the growth of credit unions and also the online banks. But we'll see if a public entity running a bank turns into be a really useful thing or, well, <laughs> we'll just wait. Joel? Clark Joan in Florida says, Hi, Clark. Vanguard sent an email that said that they're transitioning accounts from an old investment platform, which is retiring by 2022, into a new investment platform. They state that the old one was a mutual fund only platform and the new one is a general investment platform. It also states that account types uh, like IRAs and Ross will stay the same. I got to complete this transition uh, process by following a link in the email though. Is this legitimate? It is legitimate and I don't know why all the bureaucratic complexity with this at Vanguard because it's actually better for you as a Vanguard owner to have an account that gives you access to all Vanguard's array of products. Because like, there will be times that Vanguard's sibling of an index fund or mutual fund, an ETF, would be a better idea for you to own versus a mutual fund or an index fund. Gives you access to a number of more traditional brokerage things. So this is only a net positive for you. I've never seen anything that makes it a negative. Don't click in that link in that Vanguard email. Go to Vanguard.com and sign into your account. I do also want to do a follow-up with you uh, overall about Vanguard. And it has to do with a complaint we had that Vanguard had pulled the phone number off its website when an investor not a retirement investor, but an investor investor with an investment brokerage account, has a question, the number no longer is there. And I thought that was ridiculous. Well, what Vanguard has done is to try to discourage people from calling is you have to go to try to find your question online. And if the question isn't there or you're not happy with the answers you get, it will then present a phone number for you to call. And I hate that kind of bureaucratic garbage. And to me, it's very un-Vanguard-like to hide a phone number from their account holders. I think it's stupid. Kim? 
Amanda in New Jersey says, what is the average amount a single adult should be spending on food? <laughs> well, there's, there's not any one answer for that. Uh, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, to give you an idea how unknown it is, they say the range is 165 to roughly 350 a month per person for food. And it depends on family income and where in the country you live and all that. So there is no one guidepost of that. Mint actually has a calculator. Um, Kim, if it's okay, if we could put the link on our show notes where you can put in your family size and your zip code and other variables, and it'll calculate for you what would be a typical food budget for someone And that way you may well be able to get to the answer. The reality is, is people have been eating home a lot more, even with the cost of groceries going up in the supermarket. People's food budgets have gone down a lot in many cases because they haven't been eating out as much. Brad's with us on the Clark Howard Show. Hello, Brad. How are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me on today. Absolutely. How can I be of service to you? I need your uh, professional advice. I have an employer that offers a pension, and there are two options when I take the pension when I retire. One is that I get the full amount, and then when I die, it basically goes away, obviously. And the other one is that I I take a lesser amount of the pension, and my wife would get 100% of it for her life when when I pass away. There should be a third option as well. Brad, there should be a third option as well where uh, you take a smaller hit on your pension and then your Mm -hmm. wife at the time of your passing would get half of what you get. Did they offer that as well or is it really only everything? It's really only only the two. Okay, that's surprising. Um, So you're trying to decide whether it's really a better idea for you to take less now so that she's taken care of later or take more now and uh, maybe protect her another way for later? Is that kind of what you're trying to work through? Yes, sir. And we also have uh, life insurance, term life insurance. Which is great. Um, So the pension, have they given you an estimate of the, what they consider to be the actuarial value of that pension? That you have um, as far as far as the monthly amount, it'd be four hundred for the first option and about thirty four hundred for the second option. You said four hundred and thirty four thousand. I'm sorry, four thousand or thirty four hundred. Yes, sir. And there is no. I need to tell you, there is no automatic right answer here, whether you do life or life plus a hundred percent. So there are a couple of ways you can make this decision. So you would be giving up $7,200 a year. Is that right? Yes, sir. Um, So $7,200 a year buys her a $3,400 a month benefit for the rest of her life after you would pass away. That's a very generous amount of money that would be coming her way. So let's talk about your relative ages and your relative health. 
What's uh, uh, what's their each of your ages? Forty nine and forty seven, and we're both in good health. Okay, and women outlive men, yep. as you know. So she's got uh, two years longer just to start with, and maybe another, um, let's say, eight years. So let's call it ten years of additional lifespan. Just if we're just going crazy here, extrapolating numbers over um, ten years. That amount of money for her would be worth roughly four hundred thousand dollars if she outlives you by ten years. Uh-huh. And all you can do are these um, these gamifications of this. So, how easy is it for you to replace four hundred thousand dollars for her? I do have savings, so it would uh, be in uh, um, uh, our deferred comp accounts. Okay, and you said you have a, a level term insurance policy that expires when you're how old? 78. So the issue comes that past age 78, um, yep. your lifespan is probably somewhere based mm-hmm. on the actuarial tables about that at the age you are now. It means that that insurance no longer exists, which would easily give you peace of mind about accepting the larger pension and letting her uh, be covered by life insurance. Um, this is one you you don't have something here that has an automatic answer. And I think I would make the decision based on what she feels most comfortable with. You having $7,200 less a year during the years you're alive versus her having $40,000 in additional income after you're no longer here. And I'll tell you my own case, I did life plus 100 after my wife and I talked about it, but it was just what we decided, again, because actuarially it's this, it should be the same money just allocated under a different formula. So it is a decision to be made within your four walls as a couple. You're listening to The Clark Howard Show. Thanks for joining us today. The Clark Howard Show is produced by Kim Drobes, Joel Larsgaard, Deborah Reese, and Jim Ayers. And remember, 24 hours a day, we're there to serve you at clark.com and clarkdeals.com.